Karen read verses 13 through 21. The goal was to get this morning through from 17 to 21, the latter half, but there's no way. So we're going to look at verses 17 and 18 this morning, and verses the end of verse 18 through 21 is such a rich portion describing our salvation. I didn't want to shortchange that. So we're going to look this morning at 17 and 18. Let's, let's read that very, very quickly. And if you call on him as father, and the implication is you do, he's writing Christians, if you call on him, God, as your father, and you do, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, if you do that, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile while you're here on this earth, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. And then the remainder we'll do with in a few weeks. I grew up in the 60s and 70s. Basically the uh, Mayberry, Leave it to Beaver, and a little bit of Happy Days, if you want to chronicle my life based on old television shows. And life is very simple. We lived in relative safety. There were things to fear, of course. There was certainly evil in the world. But little of it touched me or my family. Our nation's, our nation's armed forces uh, fought in wars, but always on foreign soil. Then there was September 11, 2001, and things changed. So when our nation was attacked here at home, claiming almost 3,000 American lives. The aftermath of 9-11 saw an increased awareness of terrorism, and most Americans possess some level of fear regarding their personal safety. I remember thinking that after 9-11, this terrorism was always on our minds, at least for most of us, I think. Fast forward now to today. The level of fear seems to be higher in our country right now. And what we fear seems to have shifted a little as well. Whereas after 9-11, we feared threats from outside our country. Today, we fear threats from within. Crime across our country is on the rise. Who will keep us safe if police departments are defunded and if we're no longer allowed to bear arms for our own protection? Christian values are swiftly being replaced by not just no values, but devilish values. The biblical institution, uh, institutions of marriage and family are being obliterated. Previously, biblical gender roles were being altered. Now, biological gender is being denied altogether. If things continue as they are, there will be no freedom of speech and no freedom of religion if they keep going this way, it seems. And that's caused Christians some fear. Now, we might think we're alone in feeling this way. Well, all around the world, believers experience this, and worse. But let me remind you that in the book of 1 Peter, Peter is addressing believers in multiple areas, multiple churches, and they are struggling with fears regarding some of the same things. Look at chapter 4. Turn to chapter 4, verses 3, 4, and 5. We'll remind you that the book of 1 Peter is addressing Christians who are struggling 
They're being persecuted. So 1 Peter 4, 3, 4, and 5, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Now he describes what the Gentiles, what unsaved people, want to do. Here's how they live. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. What does that sound like to you? Any parallels to today? Absolutely. With respect to this, notice this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. The unsaved are surprised when you don't get involved with them. Enjoy this with us. And when you don't enjoy these sinful things with them, and stand or try to stand as a ray of holy light in that kind of a culture, how is their, what does their response look like? And they malign you. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And instead of praising you for your godliness, they persecute you. They malign you. They mistreat you. This is the response of the unsaved to holy living. And folks, the brighter your light shines in this ever-darkening world, the less support you're going to gain from those around you. The holier life you live, the more persecution you'll face, verse 5. But these unbelievers who live in debauchery will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They will stand before their maker someday and give an account. But let's understand, the believers in this book are facing a similar fearful situation as what we are facing today. Did you know that there are over 350 occurrences of phrases like do not fear or fear not found in the scriptures? The Bible speaks often of man's fears. One of the fears that the Bible addresses most often is the fear of man. And when you boil down the fears that we have today, many of them boil down to that, the fear of man and what man can do to us. Psalm 27, verses 1, 2, and 3. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. He's the refuge. Of whom shall I be afraid? So he's saying, I have no reason to fear. God's my salvation, my my refuge, my source of strength. I have have no reason to fear. Just knocked off the uh, thing here. I don't think pastor swings his arm as, as much. I think I totally totally erect it now, so there we go. Blaine, that's yours to fix later. I'm fearful of Blaine now that I wrecked the microphone. So he's saying, God is my light, my stronghold, my refuge. I have no reason to fear men. But then he goes on to describe the types of men he would normally fear. Verse 2, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, It is they who stumble and fall, though an army encamp against me. So he's naming, stating there are many that he is fearful of, but that he should not fear. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man, folks, is a trap. 
Instead, trust in the Lord. The Bible exhorts God's people to stop fearing other men because man is nothing. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, and you know this text, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Don't fear those who will possibly kill the body. They may threaten death. Don't fear men. Instead, Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't fear man. Instead, fear God. Isaiah 2.22. Stop regarding man. I love this verse. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? Stop fearing. Stop regarding. Stop worrying about. Stop fretting over the opinions of people who breathe through their nostrils just like you do. Of what account are they? The implied answer, of course, is they're of no account. They're just like you. Hebrews 13.6 We can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Nothing. Folks, the fear of man can bring us to a place of submission to man. We, we fear and we then submit to the perspectives and the, the attitudes and the leadership of men. Because we fear them. Instead, we should be submitting to the Lord. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul asks, For am I now seeking the approval of men or God? Who do, who do I fear? Whose approval am I seeking, men or God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Understand it's one or the other. If I a fear man, submit to man, bow to man, I cannot be a servant of Christ. And if I'm a servant of Christ, I cannot fear man. It's one or the other. Acts chapter 5, you know this text, verses 27 through 29. A high priest is questioning the apostles because they're preaching the word. The high priests say, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. We strictly charge you not to preach of Jesus Christ. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey what? We what? We must obey God rather than men. Over and over, folks, the Bible's clear. We fear God. We fear, uh, we, we submit to God. We don't fear man or submit to man. Folks, misplaced fear will produce misplaced submission, loyalty, and allegiance. It's easy to fall into the snare of fearing men. And when we do that, we'll suddenly submit and our allegiance will be to men. Fear of the wrong thing will blind us. The fear of man is a snare. It will capture and enslave you. But here's the question. Does that mean that followers of Jesus Christ fear no one? Is there no place for a fearful awe in the life of the believer? Is there anyone who is so terrifying that he deserves our fear? And the answer, of course, is God. We don't fear men. We don't fear 
the trials and suffering and the struggles of, of a difficult life. Rather, we fear God. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. I sit, on, I sit in heaven, I drop my feet on the earth. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But notice this, this is the one to whom I will look. Here's the one who I count worthy of being my, serv- my, my, my servant, my messenger. He was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Notice here we have the believer trembling at the word of God, at, at God himself. The one who's worthy of serving the Lord is humble and contrite and trembles when God speaks. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. How's the believer described? As those who delight to fear the name of God. Psalm 118, verse 120, the psalmist writes, My flesh trembles in fear of you. I stand in awe of your laws. The psalmist is awestruck by God and trembles before him. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Folks, God has to be feared, not just by those who reject him, but by those who love him. He is terrifying. God is terrifying in his native mightiness, power, sovereignty, and majesty. He is dreadful in his holiness. He's not a pussycat. He's not, in the words of C.S. Lewis, a tame lion. God is not a tame lion. We sometimes become casual with God, and we should not be. One author says this, The sheer majesty of God, as well as the holiness, the justice, power, and wrath of God, cannot be approached in a cavalier spirit. It would be insane to think we can just stroll up to the creator of the universe and have a cavalier spirit. We get that sometimes now. What's up, God? That kind of a spirit. We are blind, he says, if we think we can do that without trembling. We are blind if we think we can approach God with that kind of a cavalier spirit. Folks, we must never succumb to the fear of man or any other fear. But as God's people, we must always possess a humble, submissive, adoring, reverent, awe-filled, and I'll even go as far as to say trembling fear of God because of who he is and what he does. Not because we'll spend eternity in hell, that's not it. Not because he will pour his wrath on us, that's not it. But there is a a trembling, a terror of God simply because of who he is. And that's not just for the unbeliever. That's for all creatures. 
to be terrified and filled with awe because of who God is. Fear is addressed in this passage, our passage this morning. And the point that I want to make from this text, I think the text is making, is that we must cultivate an awe, reverence, and fear of the Lord. Let's pray and we'll, we'll look at this portion of First Peter. Thank you, Father, for this text, for all the texts within the Word that communicate your greatness and your majesty and your glory and all of those that speak of your children bowing before you in terror, not because they're afraid of you and your judgment, but simply because you are so terrifying in your godness. And we are so puny. We thank you, Father, for the text here that speaks of our need to be fearful of your displeasure and your discipline. Challenge us, please, Father, from these few verses this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We need to cultivate an awe, reverence, and fear of the Lord. In order to motivate us to do that, to revere and fear the Lord, Peter reminds us that God is both our judge and our Savior in this text. Let's reread now verses 17 and the first part of 18. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. That's where we'll stop today. We'll see two points this morning. First of all, as our impartial judge, the Lord deserves our honor, reverence, and fear. Now, before we dig in, really, I want us to remember the, the flow of the text. We, it's been a number of months since we've been in First Peter, and it'd be easier for us to kind of forget how this all fits together. So look at verse 13. You see the first word, therefore? That word pulls in everything just stated by Peter in verses 3 through 12. Now, in 3 through 12, you find the indicative, the indicative mood. You find facts. In 3 through 12, Peter lays out facts. And then beginning in verse 13, he gives us three commands, which we'll see in just a second. So let me just remind you of some of the, the truths regarding our salvation, the blessings, privileges, and wonders of our salvation that he lays out in verses 3 through 12. In verse 4, Peter mentions that Christians have a heavenly inheritance that will never spoil, never be contaminated, never lose its beauty, never be lost or stolen. Our salvation is that way, our future inheritance. In verse 5, Peter mentions that God's salvation is permanent. In verses 6 through 9, he explains that even through trials and suffering, there is joy in the Christian's relationship with Christ. Look specifically at verse 8. And then in verses 10, 11, and 12, Peter explains that our salvation in Christ is so magnificent, folks, and so glorious that the Old Testament prophets long to understand it better 
And the angels, even now, long to understand it. The angels, even now, are gazing, trying to grasp the glory and wonder of what God has done for me and for you. That's 3 through 12. And then verse 13. Therefore, in light of all I've just said, in light of all these facts, Peter would say, now let me give you three commands. So here are the imperatives based upon these truths. So here's the flow again. Since we have a guaranteed heavenly inheritance that will never spoil or lose its beauty. Since our salvation is permanent. Since our salvation brings us joy even during times of suffering. Since our salvation is so amazing that even the prophets and angels yearn to understand it. Therefore, verse 13, hope in the Lord to the end. Verses 14 through 16, be holy. That's the second command. And the third command, verse 17, our text this morning, revere and fear God. So folks, in light of all that we have in Christ, we are to be, if you boil down 13 and following into a three-point sermon, we are to be people of hope and joy in an increasingly despondent world. We are to be people who reflect God's holy light in an ever-darkening world. And we are, as we'll see this morning, people who... Honor and fear God in a day when people cower before men. We are to be people who honor and fear God in a day when people cower before men. So look at verse 17. Notice the end of verse 17. You have the governing command of this section. Conduct yourselves. So, God is our Father. He judges impartially. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. During your time as strangers on this earth, conduct yourselves in the fear of God. I want you to notice a couple things. Three things about this, this judgment. So verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each man's deeds, each one's deeds. Notice three things. First, the Lord judges believers. He is writing Christians here. The Lord judges believers. Secondly, the Lord judges believers based upon how they live. According to each one's deeds. God watches all we do. He judges us based upon how we live our lives. And thirdly, the Lord judges believers in this life. Look at the verse and notice the word judges. That verb is is in the present tense, which means it's happening now. Peter's not speaking of the judgment of eternal fire. He's not speaking of future judgment. He's speaking of that which is occurring right now. So he's speaking of God Uh, sifting each believer's deeds and disciplining them for their sins now, in this life. So don't look at this text and think, I'm going to face eternal judgment. He's talking to Christians. I'm a Christian. I'm going to face eternal judgment. That's not what's being said here. 
those who are not Christians will face eternal judgment. Believers will also face judgment, but it's in this life. Now, by the way, he starts off by saying, and if you call on him as father, it may be that because God was their father, some of Peter's readers thought that God cared less about their sin than when they had been unsaved. Maybe they thought, certainly, now that God's forgiven me of all my sin, now that he's made me his child, now that I'm his special possession, now that he loves me, and I'm precious to him, now because of all that, because all that's true, God's not really quite as concerned about my sin as he was before. No, God will kind of look the other way because I'm his child. Maybe some are thinking that. Folks, the very opposite is true. The very opposite is true. You may, you may fall into that. Well, God has saved me. I'm his. He loves me. And when I blow it, when I grab the things of the old life, when I allow myself to think sinful thoughts and, and say wicked things and do wicked things, I'm his child, and he's, he's not that worried about it. The very opposite is true. Now that we've repented of our sin, now that we are his children, now that we bear his name, now that we are representatives of him on this earth, he holds us more responsible for how we live, not less. His scrutiny has not abated because I'm his now. His scrutiny of my thinking and my actions, my words and my life are just as strong as they ever were because now I represent him. You represent him on this earth. So your holiness is extremely important because you reflect him. We reflect him. Notice the word impartially here. He who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. The word, the, the word literally means without receiving the face. Without receiving the face. Meaning uh, uh, that God's judgment is not based on outward appearance. God doesn't just look on, what, on how you look. Uh, whatever mask or masks you wear throughout the day, they're all transparent before God. He sees everything. He knows everything. Not simply the actions, but the attitudes behind them. Every thought is bare before him. There's nothing he doesn't see. Not just actions, but thoughts, the thoughts and intents of our hearts. He knows every secret sin. That is terrifying, isn't it? That God knows every secret sin. We, we all look a certain way to those around us, but God knows who we really are, which is wonderful and terrifying at the same time. He knows my struggles, my hardships, my insecurities. He knows my wicked thoughts. He knows how I felt this morning when our dog Baxter 
wouldn't get up. So Baxter often sleeps under our bed. I don't know why, ever since he was a puppy. Under our bed. 80-pound, 85-pound dog does the army crawl under the bed. And when he gets out, he does an army crawl out. It's hilarious to watch. This morning, he didn't want to leave under the bed. Come on, let's go, let's go. We had to go. We get up early, get us ready, we get Asa ready, we make breakfast, we make some lunch because Asa's got a play date today. We got a whole bunch of stuff going on. And this dog, he's not gone to the restroom all night. And um, we're not going to get home until 2 or 2.30. I don't want to come home to, you know what I'm going to come home to. So the Lord knows the thoughts of my heart when I'm like, let's go. Come on. Get out of there. And I'm tempted to go, you know. God knows my heart. Not just what I show my wife. He'll be okay. He knows what's happening here. And what's happening here. Which is wonderful to know when we're struggling and he knows the struggle. But it's disconcerting when we're sinning and he knows the sin. Now, what does Peter mean by the word fear here? Conduct yourselves in your daily life with fear. Throughout the short time, notice this, the time of your exile. He's referring again to the fact that we don't, we're not really citizens here. We're exiles here. We're strangers and foreigners here. This is not our home. If you're a Christian, this is not your home. So don't lock into the things of this earth. This isn't, your citizenship is in heaven. And while you're here, while we're here in exile, on this, in this foreign place, with uh, an absolutely f- uh, perspective, absolutely foreign to those of Christianity, what are we doing? We're conducting ourselves with fear the entire time. What is fear referring to here? Is this, is this reverence? Is this trembling terror? Now the verse does speak of God as our judge. Are we afraid of his eternal judgment in hell? What is going on here? Turn to Hebrews chapter 12, which is just a few pages before 1 Peter. You're going to skip over the book of James, and you're going to find Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, 5 through 8. This is a great cross-reference kind of a commentary on the fear, I think, is being addressed here in 1 Peter. Hebrews 12, 5 through 8. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary weary when reproved by him. Don't regard it lightly when God disciplines you for sin. For the Lord disciplines one he loves, the one he loves, and chastens every son whom he receives. This is what every parent does. They discipline their children. They chasten their discipline. There is hardship. There's pain in this. There's penalty. There's punishment here. But it's of a different nature than what we're talking about in hell. When God pours his wrath on those 
who reject Christ. This is a different kind of punishment. It is a discipline, the kind that a father meets out to a son. For the Lord, verse 6, disciplines the one he loves. He chastens every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Isn't this wonderful? When you're disciplined, be thankful. I, I have evidence here that, that I am a son of God, a child of God. He's dealing with me because of my sin. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, in other words, every child is disciplined, but if, you don't, if you're not being disciplined by the father, then what? You're illegitimate children and not sons. If you claim to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and you live in sin, constantly live in sin, and God does not deal with you, doesn't discipline you, that's evidence that you do not know Christ. That's the evidence that you're not a child of God. This passage helps us understand what Peter means by the word fear, I think, in verse 17. Jesus took our punishment on the cross, will not face eternal wrath or judgment, but God, the omniscient, omnipotent, and immutably holy God, will address sins in our lives, folks. He demands our holiness, and he will lovingly discipline us when we defy him. One author writes, this fear that is being referenced here is not the craven, cringing dread of a slave before an offended master. It is, the fear here is the reverential awe of a son toward a beloved and esteemed father. The awe that shrinks from whatever displeases and grieves him. Uh, This awe shrinks at the idea of the father's holy discipline. I don't want to displease God. I will stop this. The New Testament often speaks of God's people fearing discipline. Vaughn writes, the people of God should have a healthy, note this, the people of God should have a healthy dread of God's judgment. The people of God should have a healthy dread of God's judgment and shape their lives accordingly, never taking their privileged status as his children to be a license for sin. You're a child of God if you've trusted Jesus Christ, but that does not mean you can live with reckless abandon. No, just the opposite is true. Folks, we might think that the closer one gets to God, the less we would fear him. The closer I get to God, the less I'm afraid. In reality, the opposite is true. The closer you get to God, the more truly you understand him through a study of his word, the more intimately you know God, the more awe and reverence and fear you will feel. The deeper your knowledge of God becomes, the clearer will be your understanding of his absolute holiness and your sinfulness. The closer we get to God, the greater our dread of his displeasure. I do not want God to be displeased with any word or any action. The closer we get to God, the greater we'll dread his displeasure and his discipline, and the more holy our lives will be. Quickly now, as our impartial judge who will discipline his children, 
The Lord deserves our honor, reverence, and fear. And secondly, very quickly, as our merciful Savior, as our merciful Savior, he deserves our honor, reverence, and fear. There's a second motivation. So look again at verse 17. God is our judge, our impartial judge, and that's motivation. Therefore, conduct yourselves with fear, because God is the impartial judge. And then notice verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed. And he goes on to describe salvation. Knowing. So this, this word knowing looks back. Conduct yourselves with fear, knowing, understanding, grasping the fact that you were ransomed from the feudal ways of your forefathers. So here's a, a second motivation to a, a, a fear of God's displeasure and his discipline. First, and I'm just going to quickly look at two things because following Sunday we'll dig deeper. First, the Lord saved us through the death of Jesus Christ, verse 18. Notice the word ransomed. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways. This word, of course, uh, speaks of purchasing someone's freedom with the paying of a price. And in this case, of course, the price is not money. The price is the, the, the blood of Jesus Christ. And the, the phrase blood of Christ is a is biblical shorthand for uh, his death uh, for us on the cross. He saved us through the death of his son. Secondly, the Lord saved us, notice this, from empty and worthless lives. Look at, look at verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed, the price was paid from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. We know from other passages of Scripture that Christ's death bought freedom from many things, chief of which freedom from eternal punishment. But here Peter focuses on something else. He focuses on the freedom that we have in Christ from our old life and the ungodliness of our ancestors. The word futile is interesting. The futile ways inherited from your forefathers. The word means empty, useless, worthless. What has God bought us out of? It's a terrible sentence, but... What has God bought us out of? He's bought us out of empty and worthless lives. When you trusted Christ, everything changed. What a wonderful thing. This is, again, why we revere and fear God. Because he's purchased us from futile, empty lives that accomplish nothing. We spend so much of our life pursuing Anything that would satisfy the void within. Whatever it is, I'm going to do this. Maybe I'll feel better. Maybe this will fill the void. And nothing fills the void. There is this Christ-like void. And nothing fills it but Christ himself. The things of this earth, pleasure, sin, debauchery, things, uh, things you buy, none of it fills the void. But when you trust Christ, that emptiness is filled. That's the idea. Empty. Futile. And secondly, a life lived without Christ, a life lived for myself, has, is of no eternal value. When I die, it's done. If that's been my life. But when we live for Christ, our life has value. We accomplish things in this life that exist for all of eternity. You talk to someone about Christ, and by the grace of God, they run to Christ and are saved. 
That's, in a sense, something you bring to heaven with you, that person. You live a godly life and you influence people for the Lord and encourage their godliness by your godliness. You're investing in eternal things. You bring it with you. You sacrificially give toward ministry or toward missions or whatever it is. You are involved in these kinds of things that are of eternal value. You're investing in the things of heaven. And when you arrive there, they're there. But when we live lives to ourselves, this worthless, futile way of living, we take nothing with us. That's the idea, folks. Notice he says, handed down, inherited, the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. That's interesting. Peter realizes that most of us learn how to live from our families. I learn things from my parents and my grandparents and my siblings. And I grew up in a non-Christian family. Didn't hear the gospel until I was 15. Got saved when I was 16. And I brought into my Christian life at age 16 a whole lot of pagan ways of thinking and pagan practices. And that's what Peter's recognizing here. And he's saying, listen, you've got to get rid of those pagan things. Now this is what the Christian life, uh, the Christian life is largely involved in doing this very thing. Examining the things, the ways I'm thinking, what I'm doing, and saying, asking, is this Christian? Is this biblical? Oh, I learned that from this influence. Let me examine it in light of Scripture. Oh, you know, it, this is not a Christian thing. I have to get rid of that. Oh, this particular attitude that I learned from my father or my mother, that really is, that really does line up well with Scripture. I, I, can, I will do that. Examining our lives for paganism, remnants of paganism and a life of unbelief. That's what we spend a lot of our time doing. That. At least we better be. Um, I want to pick on something for a second. There's never a time when we can use, this is how I was brought up as a reason for doing something. Um, my father had an anger problem. That's why I, as if that's permission for me to. My mother was this way. I'm the same way. I'm Irish, and therefore, we Germans, that we are us, us we, whatever it is, we are us Germans, this is how we are. Uh, if you're from Kalamazoo, we are Dutch, and the rest of you aren't much, and because we're Dutch, this is how we are. Now, we can never do that. It ought to be, I am a Christian, and therefore, I'm adjusting all the other things and following Christ. Folks, our understanding of God's omniscient, omnipotent, and immutable holiness should cause us to stop fearing puny and insignificant people and start fearing him. We must cultivate an awe and reverence and fear of the Lord. And that will, be not, that will not be difficult if we remember who God is and what he does. 
He is not only the omniscient, omnipotent, sovereign, majestic God. He is our holy judge. And we're going to stand before him someday. And now as his children, he will discipline when we sin. And there should be a, a, a hatred in us for the displeasure of God. I don't want him to be displeased with me. I don't want him to have to discipline me. And there should be a fear of God because he has saved us. He's taken us out of, he's bought us out of this old life, this feudal life. And I therefore revere and fear him. And I love him and adore him. Thank you, Father, for this text. Thank you for the time we could worship you. Please use this portion in our lives. Help us to examine our lives. To realize that you are constantly watching. And you hold us to a high standard. Because we are your children and we represent you on this earth. Help us to love you and adore you and fear you appropriately, we ask this in Jesus' name.